choose to we don't have victories reaching for new heights all righty well um <clears throat> hope everyone has had a good couple of weeks uh definitely been very busy over here on our end and i know justin wishes that he could be with us but right now he's down in houston and like I said, a lot of things are going on in his life, getting ready to try and uh, go to law school. So it's going to be me this week, and hopefully in two weeks we will have another interview with uh, evolutionary biologist, a grad student at Texas State University, uh, full disclosure, one of my friends that I play Ultimate Frisbee with. But he has some interesting things because he's injected into the education community and the academic community and involved in evolutionary biology that it means that he knows more about what's on the kind of the cutting edge of where where the disagreements are where there's not an evident enough evidence one way or another to say well this is how evolution works or this is how evolution works so it's always interesting for me to hear those conversations and i hope uh y'all will enjoy it when uh we end up talking to him so uh that is about it thank you for sticking with in space and on the left after our little week hiatus like i said everything was insanely busy it really hasn't died down but i finally got a free couple of hours and i wanted to talk to everybody about a few things that have happened in the last three weeks um particularly in the space community there's been some pretty big news um i know the chinese space agency is going to be deorbiting and uh in a few months uh, is already on its way down, but eventually it will burn up. Um, SpaceX did double launches, and they're planning on doing uh, some more launches from the from the Cape, from from the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, sorry, actually, Cape Canaveral is the Air Force. Uh, Kennedy Space Center is NASA, and they launched from Pad 39A, so it's 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 the Kennedy Space Center. Um, there was an El Nino release of CO2 that NASA tracked its source, um, and the Full articles of that will be in uh, the information on the SoundCloud for this episode. But it, it, it seems like this is one of those occasions where we don't know for certain if it was like human-driven in the sense that as the planet warms, there are these carbon sinks where the carbon can get released. And because El Nino means a warmer period, um, we're going to be looking at carbon sinks releasing. So... That's just a little bit of some of the things that are going on. Um, but one of the big things that happened was the first meeting of the National Space Council. And just to kind of give you a rundown of its history, we've talked about it before. It is a meeting of high-level government officials that talk about the civil, the um, private, and the military national security aspects of the United States' entire space strategy and portfolio. So it's a big swath of subject matters that all are very closely interlinked. So we have... Uh, it. It was originally in 1958, headed by the vice president. So uh, it, this is mirrored from the way it was then. We had one under Bush. There have been some policy experts that have said that possibly the National Space Council is a hindrance to the current 
policymaking structures that have existed because the National Space Council, when it was at its most effective, was when it was forging the structures that are currently in place, like NASA and NOAA and all the research institutions and creating policy behind getting um, civil aerospace going and things of that nature in a big way and what, what the national security concerns were. And then once those structures were in place, they naturally evolved as the chime, times changed. Now, sometimes maybe you need a little bit of a, a jolt because the environment is changing faster than the systems can evolve. Um, and we know in nature what happens when that happens is extinction, and we certainly don't want to go extinct. So what is going on with the National Space Council? What does it mean? What are the policies under the Trump administration? And what did the subject matter experts who they brought in have to say? Who were they? And um, what are, of course, my thoughts on the subject? So first of all, we have the Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, James Mattis, Secretary of Defense, Wil Wilbur Ross, Secretary of Commerce, Elaine Chow, Secretary of Transportation, uh, Elaine Duke, Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Mick Mulvaney, Director of Office and... Office, Office of Management and Budget, um, H.R. McMaster, National Security Advisor, Daniel Coates, Director of National Intelligence, Robert Lightfoot, Acting Administrator of NASA, Michael Krastios, Deputy Chief Technology Officer for the United States, and General Paul J. Silva, Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So we have a lot of pretty big government heavyweights in here. Uh, some that I have way fewer problems with than others, like Robert Lightfoot and uh, General Paul Silva. And there's a thing, people like Mick Mulvaney and Mike Pence and uh, a number of other folks on this list don't seem to be m who I would want heading up a council like this, but we'll, we'll kind of get to that. So the first panel, um, as I recall, I... I titled it Legacy Space in my notes because it was Martin Hudson, president and CEO of Lockheed Martin, uh, Denik Muehlberg, um, uh, president and CEO of the Boeing Company, and David Thompson, president and CEO of Orbital ATK. So these are folks who, um, in one form or another, their companies have been in the business for a long time. In some cases, before even World War II, like Orbital ATK transformed from Morton Thiokol and acquired it and a number of other companies, and it is what it is today. Uh, Boeing's been around for a very, very long time. There was uh, Lockheed, and then there was Martin back during World War II, and then, it, then they merged and became Lockheed Martin. So Marlene of Lockheed Martin, she... In most of their testimony is things that we've talked about. The, the current state of technology, the current uh, state of where we are in our capabilities, and where we could end up being and what the role of civil space is in all of that. Now, that's all important, but I would also note that while yes, there are NASA, there is a NASA official on the Space Council, there are no NASA officials testifying about what's going on within the agency itself, mandated to explore space. And this is the panel that's supposed to be a bit about that. So, 
And one of the reasons why they're legacy space is they've been contractors with NASA and other federal agencies for a very, very long time. So that's part of the reason behind moving my mic a little bit, just real quick. Um, that's part of the reason behind them being on this panel. One of the things that she brought up that I thought was very important was Earth observation, how important those things are for both predicting the weather in general from the day to day, but also the macro level observations of the Earth and its changing climate, particularly due to human activity. Uh, that is very important. The other thing that she mentioned, and that was echoed by the other two people on the panel, was a need for a consistent, ambitious policy and the funding to match, which is something that I think you'll hear a lot of space enthusiasts say. That there's a lot of disagreement about what particular technologies, methods, and next steps need to be taken. But everyone agrees that a decision needs to be made, and we need to stick with it until we've accomplished whatever the horizon goal is that that method has been selected for. Like, we didn't sit around changing the way that we wanted to go to the moon out of the three or four different major, major contending ideas. We settled on Lunar Orbit Rendezvous in 1962, and that was that. Now, admittedly, charting a course forward for space exploration as a whole is far more complicated than simply deciding what the best method of going to the moon is. Deciding what, be what the best method to go to Mars is is far more complicated than going uh, simply figuring out the best method to go to the moon. And that's part of the reason why there was mentions of the Deep Space Gateway and a number of these other things that are all going on. Uh, when we got to Boeing, they, of course, you know, mention the national security partnerships that they have with the United States Air Force. They also talk about the journey to Mars, the SLS, the Orion, uh, which Lockheed is building the Orion, the SLS is being built by Boeing. And uh, when we get to David Thompson, the president and CEO of Orbital ATK, we're talking about humans in lunar space, the Deep Space Gateway Station, um, space-based science missions, including Earth science. Then we get to um, uh, the questions from the panel. And one of the funny things that I saw during this was the vice president, when he was reading his prepared statements, he was saying, you know, to reclaim U.S. leadership. The one area that U.S. does not have leadership in space is in our capability to launch Americans from American soil. This was a holdover of a set of decisions both at the beginning of the Obama administration but going back all the way even to the Bush administration. And it was also partially Congress's failings to put forth the funding necessary to have the continuity of capability. We probably would have had one or two year gap regardless, but knowing that since 2004, that the shuttle program was going to end in 2010 or 11, having a lack of continuity of a program to send people up on uh, was going to be very, very problematic. Now, the Bush administration put forth constellation, and then that got canceled under Obama. There were lots of problems with the Ares 1, the launch vehicle for the crew, um, and one idea that had kind of been semi-started 
under Bush was really given a whole lot of weight, the full force of the White House under Obama, which was commercial cargo and commercial crew, uh, which we'll get to those folks in a little bit. But the idea that we are behind in space, some of the missions that Europe is doing, we bowed out of because of lack of funding. Uh, they were joint missions. There are areas where we have had to make prudent choices about what we are going to be involved in in the exploration of space. But to say the United States is not the leader, is not the country that in space exploration everybody looks to for guidance is kind of asinine. And while there were flaws with the Obama policy and there were flaws certainly with the Bush policy, the over-under is they both kept us on top. And so to say that we are somehow behind simply because of this one rather key area of having launch access to space for our own citizens on our own soil, that is a problem. That is a big problem. But there are so many other positives that we are far and away ahead of everybody else in that I still don't think even with this deficiency, it puts us anywhere close to second place. Um, particularly with the milestones of launch cadence, which we'll get to. So the vice president, he seemed to know this because when he would just speak on his own, he would, you know, how do we maintain U.S. leadership instead of reacquire? But he asked, are we behind? How vital are international partners was asked by the secretary of state. And the answers were essentially the ISS is very important and needs to continue possibly even to the end of the 2020s. I somewhat disagree there. We need to be focusing on Deep Space Gateway. Um, the partnerships international are critical and a sustained vision for space with commiserate sustained funding is very necessary. Then we have the, direct, the, the, the final directive was for NASA to study the feasibility and what it would cost to return Americans to the surface of the moon um, at some point in the future. Um, we've talked a lot about my views of this. China and Europe and Japan and Russia are all going to be wanting to go. Let them build that hardware. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we are going to be building with Europe and probably Japan the Deep Space Gateway, which we need that capability because it's not just going to be a space station. It's going to have solar electric propulsion on it and a capability to interchange other propulsion systems that we can launch and test and make sure that they work and change the orbits around the moon over time, kick it out into helio eventually and uh, orbit the sun for a short period of time and sling back to the earth and then use the moon as a gravity assist to slow us down. And all of these things that you really want to be a master of before you go on an interplanetary journey that is several hundred million miles long. Let the United States do that and let the Deep Space Gateway be the place where everyone can meet up and be together and our astronauts will go and land in European or Russian or Chinese landers and we are all doing these things synergistically together. Um, in the meantime, these countries will have to compete with U.S. cheap, efficient, safe, private access to the lunar surface and cis-lunar space, and 
we will have our own presence there via SpaceX and Blue Origin and uh, other private companies. And that access in of itself, I think, speaks volumes because if we are able to have access to the lunar surface faster and uh, for less money than the governments of other great nations, I think that also exemplifies U.S.'s not only dominance in the private space industry, but also leadership in the exploration of space. That would be my vision. That is not the, how shall I say, will of the council. The next group that came up was New Space. So SpaceX's president, Gwen Shotwell, Blue Origin CEO, Bob Smith, and Fathy Osman, CEO of Sierra Nevada Corporation. Three companies that I love, three companies that I think are really, really wonderful. One of the big things that got uh, mentioned was the rapid access to space and the grand vision for the future by Gwen. And the COTS is a model for deep space exploration, which again goes back to what I was saying about access to cislunar and possibly even the lunar surface with because they have managed to drastically lower the cost of access to space. And that lowering of cost means that NASA can spend more money on the exploration hardware, can encourage these companies to gain access to the lunar surface, and then be able to provide services to U.S. astronauts living there in Deep Space Gateway, the Russians on their moon base, the Chinese, the Europeans. And the U.S. would have its own private space bases as well and that access i think again i know i just said it but would exemplify the u.s's economic dominance of the space arena uh blue origin he spoke of the apollo the inspiration for his personal involvement in space private collaboration with the government deep space access being three critical areas of Blue Origins operations. Sierra Nevada Corp estimated right now a $335 billion worldwide space industry, so it is booming. Um, recommended extending the ISS to 2030. Again, I disagree. Questions uh, about regulation to launch with the FAA, like there's having to be refiling with SpaceX when certain things have to change and they have to go through that entire process. Um, and that was a question from the vice president and there was manufacturing and space industry from the secretary of commerce. Um, some of the secretary of commerce's comments seemed a little bit like they didn't know what entirely was going on, but I mean, I really don't want to speculate too much because her, uh, her follow-up question was a good one. So possibly just trying to show off her enthusiasm, uh, but it really kind of seemed a little bit like, hmm. But again, that's probably my own bias because I just don't trust really any of these people to be making smart decisions. Um, their stances on so many issues being factually and evidentially wrong make me very concerned for whatever implementation they might have and the fact that the white house in and of itself is in such disarray also makes me worry um but 
she is right that space manufacturing is going to be very serious. Secretary of State asked about treaties and international agreements in the, in the area for improvement. Now, this is very critical because the Outer Space Treaty is a fairly groundbreaking treaty that there are, I think, over 100 nations that are signatories to. And it is very far-reaching and far-looking. Does it have flaws because we did not know how things would shape up? We, I think when it was written, we're thinking that governments would always do this and you would kind of have this more mercantilist system that we had during uh, the time when the 13 colonies were in existence. That is looking like it's very much not going to be the case. And... My concern is there's been talk in the Senate with Texas, Texas's senator, uh, Ted Cruz, about amending the Outer Space Treaty to allow it to be easier for the U.S. to militarize and weaponize space. And there is a difference between militarization and weaponization. But also for exploitation, not necessarily of just resources, but of the ability to keep things safe would be one of my other very large concerns, given Republicans' trends towards not really wanting to regulate businesses that have physical dangers to them. I'm thinking of a number of chemical plants that exploded in my, in, in my home state of Texas, in central Texas, a few years ago, and it was because of under-regulation and under-inspection. And while I think reform is necessary to meet a higher level of cadence and continue to bring the cost of launch down, um, certainly the FAA model is a way to go. I definitely agree with Gwen on that one. There's a SpaceX white paper on recommendations for regulatory rework um, with the, an emphasis on high launch cadence with safety and affordability. I definitely would like to read that and find some experts on launch and, and range safety and vehicle safety and, you know, see what I can dig up there and what regulations uh, need to be changed to streamline this because they certainly do. The, the, the regulations right now are old. They're, they're from the 60s. Uh, the, reforming them is not something that um, I'm anywhere close to against. I just am concerned where these regulations might be changed and deregulated, particularly with McMulvaney. And he was foaming at the mouth about deregulating things and cutting taxes and all these kinds of things like that. And that's not necessarily the best way to go. Um, the FAA, I think, has done well because the fear of falling out of the sky and the bad PR that brings also helps companies to make sure their aircraft are safe, but also there are very strict regulations with the FAA, very strict regulations. And that's because the United States wants safe airways because it's such an economic boon. The same thing is true for space. And the optics of rockets blowing up and falling out of the sky is very, very bad. When SpaceX had that incident on the pad, um, and when they had the incident when their vehicle broke apart on launch, there was fairly negative news coverage of that. Um, the coverage was actually quite good if you got into the nuance, but 
there is no stretch of the imagination that losing a rocket, uh, losing a, a $200 million communication satellite, and losing a cargo vehicle with food for the astronauts and cosmonauts on the space station, these are not good things. And the optics of which are very, very bad. And if there are people on board, it is far worse than optics and just money loss, obviously. And we don't want that. And so for those reasons, the FAA, I think, has been a fairly successful regulatory agency that people have not, on the right, attacked as much because it's just one of those things. Planes and rockets falling out of the sky is bad. As far as manufacturing goes, to answer the Secretary of Commerce's question, 3D printing and in-space manufacturing will be critical to all aspects of sustainable space industry. This is 100% true. This is one of the reasons why we need to be going to asteroids. We need our own private bases on the moon. We need to be working with our partners and allies and creating new ones to go land on the moon. We need to be using 3D printing to maintain the Deep Space Gateway as it is up there for 10 years and show that we can have a self-sustaining uh, a part, part replacement um, system to make sure that the uh, environmental life support and control systems all can continue to function and the vehicle can get the crew home safe. The answer to the, inner, in, uh, the Outer Space Treaty from the panel was, you know, we is a good framework, need revision to reflect the changing landscape of space industry and the economic environment, which is true. The exploitation of resources and things like that need to be tweaked some. But I am not interested in, an, in a treaty that advantages us in international law. I'm interested in a treaty that creates a fair, cooperative working ground of rules for everyone involved that are spacefaring nations, that welcomes new spacefaring nations. Because competition in the private marketplace is the only thing that's going to continue to get SpaceX, Blue Origin, Sierra Nevada, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, um, Oberlay TK, United Launch Alliance, the list goes on, to continue to innovate and to continue to try and lower the cost and the efficiency of access to space and access to locations within cis lunar space. So changing all of those things, I, I, I'm for, I just, again, am concerned with the people who are deciding to change them, given the other things about stuff that they want to change down here on Earth. The directive from the OMB, a full review of regulations in 45 days, needs to see what needs to be done to reform, which is a pretty short period of time. Uh, I guess they're wanting to get this done uh, before the close of the year. Next is the National Security Space Panel. Dr. Mike Griffin, former administrator of NASA. We have Colonel Pamela Melroy, a former uh, NASA astronaut. and uh, I forget exactly where she's working now, but she's high up in that particular government agency that deals with um, communication and sensing systems and all of our... Uh, satellites that give uh, battlefield awareness. And then we have uh, Admiral James Ellis. He's from the Heritage Foundation. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed about this panel, and just touch on it briefly because I'll talk about it more, they, they are obviously all fairly a conservative bunch. Um, 
particularly in the national security realm if you look at the organizations that these folks currently belong to. That being said, that doesn't mean that they're wrong. One of the things that I do like about space is it seems to level the playing field where while some ideas are better than others, none of them are really awful ideas that are being put forward. Like, if we have to go build the hardware to go land on the moon again and build lunar bases, it will not be a total loss. It will not be something that sets us back decades. What has set us back decades is low budgets and an inconsistent plan. I think it will set Mars back a decade, but that in and of itself, it does not necessarily mean that it's bad. We will learn things from having our own lunar base. I simply think that there is a better, more cooperative way of learning those lessons while learning the other lessons that we need to learn in order to get to Mars. All right, so uh, Dr. Mike Griffin act, uh, advocated for a more robust and independent military launch infrastructure, which we already kind of have at Cape Canaveral. Those are, that's, that, that's the U.S. Air Force territory. But kind of what he was talking about is, you know, we don't use 737s as jet fighters. So he's wanting his own independent launch infrastructure and his own independent launch vehicles that belong solely to DOD for the purposes of uh, national security. I disagree with this. There might be vulnerabilities, but those vulnerabilities to the companies and their hardware, there are strict regulations, and a lot of the facilities where these things are at the very least launched, again, Cape Canaveral is not a private location. It is an Air Force location, and so that is incumbent on the government to make those places safe and an independent launch infrastructure on its own. Colonel Pamela Melroy, and the other things that Michael Griffin said that I totally agreed with, but they're kind of echoed by uh, Colonel Melroy and Admiral Ellis, so I'll just kind of touch on them and just know that Mike Griffin also said them, and I agree with them. Uh, so we have, according to Colonel Melroy, a robust infrastructure for detecting things in high detail, but the timing is off. Like we have, There's times when we don't get enough information, and with constellations of small CubeSats that have low resolution and low fidelity of information can help bridge the gap between the high fidelity, high resolution of information and the lack of connection of information, the lack, the lack of time when we're getting information. So cutting the time frame of information in the kill chain, so that's from detection all the way to the end of battle damage assessment, um, and then uh, an evaluation of what the next move needs to be as the entire kill chain. Um, we need to bolster defense and reliability of all of our systems, redundancy with allies, starting with the five eyes, Admiral Ellis. Uh, con concentration, con uh, I, can't, I can't even speak right now. Uh, considered with the robustness of our defense and infrastructure, both space and earth are linked. Uh, brought up the cyber attacks and cyber infrastructure and the need for independent control and um, data storage nodes. That way there was full redundancy across all platforms. Um, and this included allies, and he also mentioned the Five Eyes, NATO, the like. Um, one of the things that Ellis brought up and uh, Pamela brought up, uh, Colonel Malroy, um, was that the U.S. does not use exclusively 
military communication satellites for military communication. We have uh, private communication satellites that our signal for Department of Defense piggybacks on. And a lot of our global positioning system is not only just used for the military and situational awareness for our warfighters, it is an economic asset to the United States and to maintain and safeguard those assets because our financial transactions, international financial transactions, are go through the GPS system. And credit cards, things like that, all go through the GPS system to one degree or another. And safeguarding those is very, very important. And obviously, this is one of the areas where most of what they're saying is pretty easy stuff to probably fix in the sense that it's not going to cost exorbitant amounts of money other than one of the recommendations of Mike Griffin, which again, I disagree with, like just make the current structures safer that we have. Uh, they do not need to be strictly independent in our in the current day and age and, and form of how access to space is coming about. Um, the, I forget his, his title, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, uh, General Silva asked about, you know, taking from private industry and finding the efficiencies. And obviously, I'm all for finding more efficiencies um, and looking at SpaceX and Blue Origin and Sierra Nevada for those kinds of things. And then um, my general thoughts on this, one thing that was very telling was science was only brought up tangentially, Earth science and hints at study of our environment were only talked about by the panelists and very briefly. No real government officials. I know that they were all really supposed to be on the council, but no government officials talked about the state of NASA extensively, NOAA, DOD, the National Reconnaissance Organization, and other entities uh, that deal with both national security. Um, you know, we didn't hear from high-ranking officials that work with these companies on a day-to-day -day basis from the FAA, from the Chamber, the United States Chamber of Commerce, from the Office of Chief Technologist, people that are working with them on the day-to-day, -day, not just the secretaries, not just the heads. They've been previously briefed, but this is a public forum, and this is a good chance for both the arguments for prudent deregulation and the areas where and why regulations need to stay in place, and that was not heard from. Um, there were no international allies who came and spoke at this panel about how our national security can be bolstered by communicating better with our allies. And no, no experts from the State Department were talking who deal with Russia and Roscosmos and the Chinese Space Agency and the other spacefaring nations of the world like ESA and JAXA and the Canadian Space Agency. No one was coming in and talking about those things. Either it was a very business centric. Again, the legacy space panel was the legacy space contract companies. It was not the government officials. So that was um, something that you know was a very economics geared. Um, and then there was the a big emphasis on the military, which again is important. Our national security's infrastructures they keep the world running. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just given some of the other talks about changing the Outer Space Treaty to allow for the weaponization of space to be more possible, not just the militarization of space, um, and for the closing of the gap between a civilian space agency and the Department of Defense to 
close that gap more when we've been trying to steadily widen it uh, since its formulation. So those are kind of my thoughts. Oh, and again, no mention at all of climate change. No mention explicitly of this human-driven phenomenon at all and the critical role it will play in the space economy, in the global economy, in national security, in international politics and geopolitics, and the security of the world. And space plays a critical role in understanding climate change. So no mention of that whatsoever, um, just tangential hints from a couple CEOs, uh, one of whom their, their founder stepped off of Trump's economic council for leaving Paris. Then, of course, he's Elon Musk, and I think Boeing's eventually did too, and then Lockheed's. So the other thing that I wanted to talk about today is something that's very, very sad. Um, and there's been a lot of stuff that's happened in the news since this has happened. And it's easy sadly enough, particularly in this country, to forget that it was so close. It, it didn't happen that long ago, the shooting in Vegas. And the appalling human tragedy of gun violence in this country, that we have failed to have the courage to do something about. Um, there were some Republican congressmen who said we might be open to banning bump stocks, which is like the absolute least that you can do, but should be done. Um, and then the NRA came out against it after they were considering being for that reform. And... I didn't look up the numbers of how much money gun manufacturers make in this country. And I don't know what their growth rate, if and if there is a growth rate with them, since this has become such a hot-button issue under the Obama administration with the rhetoric of always coming to take your guns because gun sales went up under Obama. To me, we, we know that merchants of weapons, instruments of death, uh, usually are able to make a pretty penny off of uh, blood in the streets somewhere. Unfortunately, all too often it is in American cities and suburbs and across this country and at a music festival in Las Vegas. There was a really good article about the people who lost their lives um, in the LA Times. And it talks about each of their victims. And I was reading through all of them. And it reminded me of the paper that I wrote when I was studying the Challenger disaster. Just reading about the astronauts who died and then also the, just the technical information about what went wrong and the second-by-second -second account of the breakup of the spacecraft all the way till impact. And it was, it was like reading, it was like going that over that over and over again uh, to the point where I couldn't read it anymore. I got about um, 
about 12, 12 people in. And there were still so many more who lost their lives. And we do not have the moral courage to do anything right now about this. There have been some victories on the local level, stopping NRA bills, things like that. But until, until more Americans are willing to speak to their public officials and say, I don't care how much money the NRA throws at you. If you do not support common sense gun reform, which the majority of the American people and the majority of card-holding NRA members agree with, which lets you know that has nothing to do with just folks. It has to do with the people making money off of the sale of guns and appealing to our machismo, our sense of distrust of government, our sense of distrust of each other, our sense of distrust of people that we have been fooled into thinking are other from us. They feed on these things so they can create death and a profit. But what I wanted to do beyond just opining about what happened and just how much of an awful tragedy it was, I wanted to talk a little bit about the state of gun violence in this country in comparison to that of Germany. And know that Germany is a pretty decent litmus test for the EU. France is a little bit better, but we'll get to that. Other countries do a little bit better, a little bit worse. Um, and I picked Germany because it's the most populous country in the EU. It's the largest economy. And so in, the, in those ways, it's one of the more conservative um, nations of the EU. And so in those ways, it's similar to the United States as a developed dominant force on the world. So, just a little bit of information. The estimated total number of guns, both illicit and illicit, held by citizens, civilians, in the United States is 272 million to 310 million. The estimated rate of Private gun ownership, both licit and illicit, per 100 people in the United States is 101.05. So that means out of 100 people, one of us has basically two guns. Um, in 2007... The comparison of the numbers of privately owned guns in 178 countries, the United States ranked number one and ranked number one of privately owned firearms per 100 people. Rate of gun deaths per 100,000 people. Now, this metric helps equalize population. And I did some math once on this. I took the countries in the EU, figured out their gun death, their, their gun death rate, and looked at the U.S.'s, and the entire EU has a higher population than the United States by over half. And theirs still was less than ours um, by a lot. So just gives you an idea. Uh, I checked the raw numbers. Anyway, so the rate of gun deaths per 100,000 people in 2014 was 1054 Rate of homicide of, uh, by, per 100,000 people by any method 
in 2014 was 4.96. Rate of homicide per 100,000 people by firearm in 2013 or in 2014 was 3.43. So basically one and about a half of all the homicides in the United States out of the five, essentially, that happen um, for, per 100,000 people. Only one and a half of those is with something other than a gun. A gun is the preferred method. In 2012, 60% of all homicides were committed with a gun. There is a prodigious rate of a number of small arms manufacturers that are increasing after the year 2008. Went from, you know, steadily getting close to 4 million, then it gets to 4 million, 4, 4, uh, 4, 4.5 million, then 5, then 5.5 million, then 6.5 million, then 8.5 million, then 10.8 10, 10 million, then 9 million, then 10 million in 2015. So we know that there are more and more of these going on. Now, um, we're going to get down to Germany. The estimated total number of guns, both licit and illicit, held by civilians in Germany in 2016 is 25,830,000. And Germany has about 80 million people. So, a lot less than the United States. The estimated rate of private gun ownership, both licit and illicit, per 100 people in 2016 is 32. So, about a third of the country owns a firearm. Unlike every American citizen in this entire country. In Germany, the annual deaths resulting from firearms total in total in 2014 were 820. In Germany, the annual rate of all gun deaths per 100,000 population in 2014 was 1.01. For comparison, again, the United States is about 5 per 100,000 people. Just under, uh, ju just, just under 5. In Germany, annual homicide, by any means, was 662, and in 2008, it was 722 per 100,000 people in 2001. Looks like it's 2001 was 1.2. Or uh, what? Yeah, what was uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I wrote down 2011 wrong. In 2011, so the um, uh, the number of deaths per 100,000 in 2011 was 0.8. So considerably less than the United States. In Germany, annual firearm homicides totaled in 2014 42 per 100,000 people. Oh, I, 
I've read that all wrong. Okay, so in Germany, annual firearm homicides were 2000, uh, for 2014 were 42. And that statistic for per 100,000 people was 0.05. The reason for this is they have much stricter gun laws and they have fewer guns. And in the end, not only does that mean fewer people get killed with a gun, fewer people commit suicide with a gun, but fewer people just get killed. There are other factors. There is mental health. There is a culture of toxic masculinity that has been fermenting here, which I could go on and on and on about. There are many, many things about our problem with gun violence in this country. But one of the problems is all of the damn guns. There are just too many of them. France, like I said, is doing a little bit better, by quite a bit actually, uh, than Germany. And by quite a bit is kind of relative because all the European countries are kind of about the same. And they're slightly less populous. They're, uh, let's see, they have 60 million. Germany has, uh, Germany has 80 million. Now, the idea also gets floated from time to time. You know, well, we have the Second Amendment, and we do. And we have a right to bear arms. I think also there's that first part about a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. We have free elections in this country, and we could probably do a whole episode on how that's being undermined as well, particularly by the GOP, but by, you know, the donor class on both sides. Um, but all in all, we have free and fair elections in this country. And the notion that we need to guard ourselves against the strongest military force in the history of mankind, when that military force has been able to, when ordered, turn itself against its own people, and the Tuskegee experiment comes to mind and other really horrendous things that the military has done um, to American citizens. The power of the military to do things to us if the government were to turn against us is unparalleled. Your Glock, your shotgun, your AR-15, really whatever you have is not going to compete against that not to mention the full force of their ability to just start turning off power and all kinds of other things because the government has control of the infrastructure to one degree or another. The exercise of our freedoms and the exercise of our ability to ensure that the government does not turn against the people is by holding our leaders to account and kicking them out of office when they do not conduct themselves in the people's best interest. The uh, recidivism rate in Congress 
says that the United the people of the United States have been derelict in that duty. We got very upset with Congress for not changing their ways. Um, there was a big push with the Tea Party, trying to shake things up, and there's again a lot there with the reactionary reactionism against Obama and all of that and everything that it entails. But even they ended up towing a corporate line and not getting things done on behalf of the American people. That is the exercise of our liberty. That is how we are able to ensure the government does not turn itself against us. Your Glock is not going to do that. And the idea that guns protect the other rights in the Bill of Rights is, frankly, quite asinine to me. There are a lot of problems when it comes to gun violence. I listed them off before. But one of them that never gets talked about is the guns. The guns are maybe not necessarily the root of the problem, but they wield a big stick being the tip of the spear. And we should do something about it. So remember, stay active, call your congressperson, make sure that they know how you feel about all of these issues that we talked about today, the Outer Space Treaty, call your senator, make sure they know how you feel about making sure that our science institutions remain a place where information and not ideology and evidence are what carry the day about what recommendations and what facts are presented to the American people so we can make good choices. And um, if you have specifics about um, the space policy that's being put forth, feel free to email at inspaceonleft at gmail or tweet at me, Carl NASA Advo. Um, and please, you know, make sure you go give us, give us a like, give us a rating. Uh, that helps the show grow, but also just stay informed, stay active, call your congressperson and make sure they know how you feel so they will represent you better. Uh, that's the only way that uh, this ends up working. All right, y'all, well, we will talk to you in two weeks about uh, evolution and its current state. Bye.